Thank you, Don, for reading that for us. Good to see each of you here today. I, I know there's some who have been held back by rain, and uh, uh, th this is what they don't know. Some probably thought, you know, it's raining hard, we can't get to the car, let's just watch live stream. And the reality is, this morning, we don't have the live stream working. So it pays to endure and fight through the pain of rain, doesn't it? Amen. Now, later this afternoon, this service is being recorded, so later this afternoon we'll post that, but they'll have to wait for that. Uh, I want to thank you for being here this morning, and take your Bibles open to Matthew's Gospel. We're going to be at chapter 1, picking up at verse 18, the passage that Don just read for us, and, and let's begin with prayer. Lord, as we open the Word of God, it is our heart's desire to receive truth to receive revelation, to receive insight and understanding that we desperately need today. So God, use your word this morning to reprove us, to challenge us, and where necessary, correct us. Use your word to comfort us, to strengthen us, and to keep us in a direction that pleases you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just quickly, just reminding you of what we covered last week as we started this new series. And boy, it's good to be back in this place. I, I, for me, I'm enjoying this because uh, you're lit up. I can see all your faces well. And I don't know if you can see me, but I see you. And so I'm, I'm a happy camper. Uh, I, I, I want to take us back where Matthew... We learned uh, two weeks, three weeks ago, actually, when we had the introduction, that Matthew writes to establish that Jesus is the only rightful heir to the throne of being king of, king of the Jews, the throne of Israel. And he wastes no time in laying this foundational statement. In his very first verse, Matthew says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Matthew is all about letting you and I understand who Jesus is. He's more than just a baby that was born, more than just a good prophet that came to the earth. Jesus is Messiah. He's the Son of God. And you find that in the Old Testament prophecies, that uh, the Messiah would be the Son of David, just as Matthew said in verse 1. In Isaiah 11, verse 1 through 3, it says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Jesse was David, King David's father, and through whose line the messianic king would come. So this is a fulfillment, and Matthew's simply pointing that fact out, that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne, royally speaking. But he's also the rightful heir of the throne, racially speaking, because he said he's also the son of Abraham, and if you look at the prophecy in the Old Testament, Genesis 22, verse 18, God speaking to Abraham said, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So in chapter 1, we learned that Jesus is qualified to racially and royally be the king. By the way, we also learned <clears throat> no other Jew on the earth today is qualified to be the Messiah. No Jew. You say, well, how, do you say, how can you say that so confidently? Because there's not a single Jew on the earth today, including the Orthodox Jews, who follow everything to the letter of the law. Not one of them can give absolute certainty of which tribe they are from. All of those records were destroyed in 70 AD when Rome came in and swept over Jerusalem and leveled the temple where all the records were kept. So there's no Jew, and you have to know that you are a son of Abraham. You have to know that you came through the lineage of David. Only Jesus can lay claim to that fact. In chapter 2, we're going to see that Jesus is validated as the king through the act of worship. So it's one thing for people to show us in Scripture, in the genealogy, and through Old Testament prophecy that Jesus is the king. It's another thing for people to actually, in the physical flesh, worship him as king 
even as a little baby. He hasn't even done anything yet. And yet they come by faith and they worship him as the king of the Jews. If you've jumped ahead in your reading, you've probably noticed that, the, that Matthew doesn't really tell us much about the birth of Jesus. You'll find that in Luke's gospel if you want the full narrative of the birth of Christ. Matthew tells us where Jesus comes from. And it tells us the story through the eyes of not Mary, but Joseph. So picking up at verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. There were basically three steps, young people that are here today, and adults, listen to this, three steps in Hebrew culture that would bring you into marriage. Okay, three steps to marriage, three steps, not one, not two, three, okay? The first step was engagement. That didn't have anything to do with the couple that's getting engaged. That had to do with the parents. The parents were the ones, in most cases, that chose the spouse for their child when the child was still very young. So you didn't really have a say in the matter, young people. What would it be like, young people that are in the room, to have mom and dad pick your spouse? Oh, my. That's kind of scary to think about, isn't it? Number two, uh, once the engagement had been taken care of, then there's the betrothal period. We see that in the text. Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. This made the engagement legally binding. Now you are of age. And by the way, what is of age for marriage in the Hebrew culture? Mary was probably 15 or 16 years old. She was a teenager, a younger teenager. Now the parents are getting nervous in the room. Okay, move on, Pastor Greg, right now, move on. That was that culture, okay? This is a different day, right? Okay. And, and so during the time of betrothal, the couple were known as husband and wife. However, uh, there was no physical intimacy during the betrothal period. The betrothal lasted a year. So for a year, you are legally bound to that person as, as your spouse. But there's no physical intimacy for a year. It's almost a testing time. And at some point in the course of the year, if you thought, man, he's just not the guy for me, I didn't know that he would squeeze the tube from the top to brush his teeth. You are able to divorce him, or she's able to divorce, uh, or he's able to divorce her during the betrothal period. But even divorce was a legal binding contract. So this is very legal. You are husband and wife treated that way, except that you do not have any physical intimacy. Then, of course, after the year of betrothal, you would have a wedding feast. That's where the marriage took place. The feast would last for about a week. Could you imagine going to a wedding that lasts a week? And guess who pays for it? The groom. The groom springs the bill. I raised three daughters. Oh, how I wish! That cultural nuance was in our culture today. Uh, it was celebrated with a wedding feast, okay? Now, the betrothal period is where we find Mary and Joseph in our story this morning in this text. Mary, again, is just a young, middle-aged teenager, and she's just learned that she's pregnant. Verse, verse 19, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. When Mary came to Joseph and told him that she was pregnant, he could have charged her publicly with immorality, adultery. He did not do that. Knowing that she's pregnant, knowing that some other man has been with my betrothed wife, and that's what he would have thought. He was contemplating, he was thinking through it. Joseph showed mercy. He didn't want to bring attention to Mary's situation or damage her name in the process. He simply wanted, the Bible says, to divorce her 
quietly. I don't want to ruin her. I just don't want to be married to her because I don't trust her. But he didn't just jump to that conclusion. We need more people today who are like Joseph. We need more men today who are like Joseph. We need to walk in grace with others, especially our spouses. What we see today is much different, right? It's possible to be morally right and be unmerciful in our dealings with people. Or the opposite can be true. It's possible to be merciful, and yet we don't pay attention to what is right. So here we are showing mercy to everybody because they need mercy, but our life is a, is a wreck. We're not walking in the beauty of God's truth. Both can happen. It's rare to find someone who walks in both justice and mercy. Justice and mercy. In fact, if you look over, don't take time to turn. I'll just go ahead and bring it up for you. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, it says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Here it is. To do justice, there's the walk in moral soundness, and to love kindness. There's the mercy, there's the grace that you show. And to walk humbly with your God. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She's not been with another man. She's never had physical intimacy with a man. What is inside of her is from God through the Holy Spirit. But I think there's something there we need to see before we focus in. First of all, I want you to just see how Joseph reacts as he hears that his, his wife is pregnant. It says, verse 20, but as he considered these things. Again, he didn't jump to a conclusion he was wondering what the best course of action would be regarding Mary's pregnancy from another man. And then what happens as he's waiting, as he's probably praying to God, saying, Father, what do I do with this? I trusted this woman. What happens? God shows up. When you're facing a trial in life, when you're going through a time of uncertainty, when some setback occurs in your life, how do you respond? Do you respond like Joseph, who considered these things? Who no doubt, because he was a righteous man, no doubt prayed to God, giving it to God, asking God for help. Do you do that? Or do you immediately jump to a conclusion, this is what I have to do? And out of your own way of thinking, not, not waiting for God, not waiting for God to reveal his word to you, but just go ahead and jump out of the flesh, knee-jerk, and make a decision. Joseph didn't do that, and I'm thankful because he gave time for quiet reflection, time to consider this whole scenario, and in that, God shows up. I love that. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is a popular passage, but I don't know that we read it in order to apply it as much as we read it in order to memorize it. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. When you, when you acknowledge God in every situation, not just when some big, you know, I just had this incredible experience, I, they're going to give me this huge raise at work and woo, God, you're awesome. No, no. When you get the worst news possible, acknowledge him. Recognize that as bad as it is, your God is still in control. He's still on the throne, and most of all, he knows you. Deuteronomy says he will never leave you, he will never forsake you. Verse 7 in Proverbs 3 says, Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. 
It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. When you sit with the Lord, when you wait upon the Lord in your time of great need, it's going to come back to you as a healing. God's going to do something. He's going to use it to grow you. You might be in that painful place for a while, but God, every day, you suck the life out of the pain. Suck the life out of the trial so that you can get to a point where you can see God's work in it. See, in our minds, we're thinking, if I can just get away from it, then God can do something. God, please deliver me from this mess. Well, there's nothing wrong with asking God to deliver us from a trial. But the reality is, if you know the Word of God at all, you know that oftentimes it's the trial that God uses to grow you. Why would He remove you from it so quickly? Where are the amens? That's a tough one to do it to give an amen to, isn't it? To think that God would actually want me to stay in this mess for a while? It's biblical. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He didn't say when. James 1, 2. James just lays it on the line for us. If you want to just flesh this thing out a little further, count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete Lacking in nothing. Let the trial produce what? Endurance. Steadfastness. And let that go to the full measure so that you can be more mature, more complete in Christ than when you entered the trial. If any of you lacks wisdom, now this gets interesting, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Joseph, no doubt, in that moment, wondering what's going on, was asking God, Lord, I don't get it. I don't understand it. It makes no sense. She's a godly woman. How could this happen? How could she let her guard down and let some other man in like that? And here God is speaking to Joseph, and he's saying, son, you don't have all the wisdom on this. Let me help you with it. And let me, let me explain something to you, that in these situations, you have to trust me and know that I always know what's going on, and I always know how I'm working in it. And he says, if you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And what was the wisdom that God gave Joseph? Don't divorce her. The child inside of her came from God, not a man. You stay with her. Man, sometimes, isn't it wonderful? Can you look in your life at the times where you were in a place of great perplexity and you trusted God and he, by his word, gave you insight and understanding. And you came into, in the midst of this trial, you come into a place of rest, a peace. I, I've had that happen numerous times in my life. I've had peace come over me in some of the worst case scenarios because God is faithful. And others say, no, well, that peace didn't come to me. Believe me, it was there. You didn't see it. Because your eyes were looking out and in instead of up. Peace comes from God. He goes further, James does. He says, but let him ask in faith. If you're going to ask God for wisdom, ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Joseph could have heard that word from the Lord through the angel and then come back and said, well, I don't know about that. Part of him going, yeah, maybe it's true. The other part saying, don't believe it. She's been with somebody you got to get rid of this gal. For that person that thinks that way must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Had Joseph been two-minded, one thought one way, one thought another, he would have never experienced the goodness of God and seen the work of God. Thank God for Joseph. Amen? And what did, he, what did the angel say to him? It's not just giving Joseph information because this is a linear kind of a decision. Men, we work and live in this linear thing, you know? He said to him, don't be afraid. 
Do not fear what's happened. God's doing something through Mary. I want to say to the men in the room, humbly and respectfully, if your wife is growing in the Lord, God's doing something in her, and it's causing her to change in her characteristics. She's becoming transformed by the work of God through his word. And you're seeing her devote more time to prayer. You're seeing her desire to be with women who love God, maybe through women's ministry, or maybe she's in a morning Bible study. And, and, and many men can be intimidated by that. What's happening to my wife? She's changing. She doesn't have dinner on the table at 5 o'clock like she always did. Usually the change is how it affects us because we're very self-centered. And ladies, you are too. We're all self-centered. Amen? Let's be honest. Yeah, it comes natural to us. It's not a spiritual gift. Don't, don't be proud of it, okay? Some of you didn't respond. You're like, hmm, well. We need to be supportive of our spouses. The same is true for men. I remember way back, you know, they had the promise keeper thing going on, and women would cry to me as a pastor, oh, I just wish you could get my husband to go. This would just change his life. It would be awesome. And we would talk with that man, and he would say, okay, I'll go. He doesn't even go to church, but I'll go, I'll go. Yeah, it's a time, weekend away. He would go. God would do something in him. He comes back a different man. And I would watch those same wives that were crying out for their husbands to go become envious, jealous of their husbands. God was doing something new. That's, that's human nature. We can get there, can't we? All of us? The angel told Joseph, fear not. If God's up to something, let it happen. Don't resist the Holy Spirit. That's why the Bible says that we can quench the Spirit. Don't let that happen. Verse 21, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Well, let's just stop for a second and bring some clarity to the name of Jesus, because I, 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 I don't know that we understand what his name is, what his name means, and we don't understand what is not his name. So take your, if you have your little uh, Bible study guide that we have passed out to people, uh, you can use that to write this down, but his name is Jesus. There is no last name. His name is Jesus. That's his full name, Jesus. Okay? Jesus isn't his first name any more than Christ is his last name. It's just Jesus. Which, by the way, was one of the more common names in Israel in that day. In Hebrew, it translates Yeshua. Okay? In our translation, Joshua. In the Greek, Jesus. It's all the same. Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus. Joshua is the Hebrew form. Jesus is the Greek form. Christ is a descriptive title given to Jesus. It's not his last name. In the Greek, it means anointed, or in this case, anointed one. <clears throat> in the Old Testament, three groups of people were anointed. They were anointed with oil, symbolic of the Holy Spirit resting upon them, okay, one was the prophet, another was the priest, a third was the king. Those three were anointed. Interestingly, Jesus is the prophet who came to declare the word of God. Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded you. Jesus is also our faithful high priest. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
And also, he is the king of kings. In Revelation chapter 17, verse 14, it says, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So the three, again, let me give them if you're writing them down. Jesus' prophet, Deuteronomy 18.18, declares it. He is a faithful high priest, Hebrews 2.17. And he is the king of kings, Revelation 17.14. He is Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one. In verse 21 of our text, the latter part of the, of the verse, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Here it is. For he will save his people from their sins. There's an interesting parallel that we just need to mention, okay? It's this. Joshua in the Old Testament was the one who replaced Moses. Moses could not go into the promised land. Moses is represented by the law of God. That's why it's called the Mosaic Law. Moses represents the law. The law can never bring you into God's promised fulfillment of salvation. So God raised up who? After him. Joshua. Yeshua. What is Joshua? What does Jesus' name mean? Yahweh saves. Joshua means salvation. God had to bring us to salvation in order to enter into the full rest and the pleasure and the fulfillment of God's, of God's saving grace. You're not saved by works. You're not saved by being a good person, by following the law. The law was given to us to point us to the, sa the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. That's all the law does. You say, how does the law do that? Because the law simply tells you what's right and what's wrong. And since we're fallen human beings, we're constantly falling into sin. We look at the law, we read the law, and then we sin. You are constantly reminded of your sin by the law. But the law can remind you of sin, but it can't save you from your sin. The salvation of sin has to come from someone who can perfectly keep the law. Jesus Christ, our Savior, kept the law, never sinned. Therefore, Jesus is the one by whom we come into salvation or our own promised land. Amen? Praise God for that. I'm so thankful for that. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Emmanuel is Jesus' descriptive name. It's a name that was given to him to speak of his ministry. You never find anyone in the, in the gospel saying to Jesus, Jesus, or Emmanuel, heal me. They never call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel simply tells you that this is why he came, to be with us, to minister among us. Okay? There's another name that Jesus goes by, is Jehovah Sidkenu, which is a Hebrew name for Jesus. This is a prophetic name. If you look it up, it's in Jeremiah 33, 16. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is righteousness. Jehovah Sidkenu. Jesus is our righteousness. When you see Jesus in heaven, you're not going to go, Jesus! You're going to go, my righteousness! Jehovah Sidkenu. It's because of him that you're righteous. Look, I'm a pastor of a church. I am not your righteousness. If you have a life group leader, you have a person that's a mentor in your life, spiritually speaking, they are not your righteousness. Why? Because all of us fall short of the righteousness of God. Amen? Not a person in this room qualifies to be the righteous one. Jesus is the qualified one and he goes to the cross and he proves it. And God affirms it. Because three days later, after Jesus died for the sins of mankind, God raised him from the dead. Had he not had 
the ability to be sufficient in his death for our sins, God would have left him in the ground. But because he fulfilled the full law and he went to the cross and became the sacrificial lamb and covered through atonement the sins of the people, up from the grave he arose. Hallelujah. Can't wait to celebrate that again on Easter. Every, and we ought to be celebrating it every day, not wait till Easter, right? Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. So, <clears throat> Joseph waited for the Lord to guide him. God gave instruction. Joseph followed the instruction of the Lord. This is the most difficult moment in his life up to that point. He's facing a severe issue. And what does he do? He waits for God. He receives from the Lord. He obeys the Lord. He calls the child's name Jesus. Okay? He keeps Mary as his wife. But interestingly also here, what we see, verse 25, but knew her not. He did not know his wife physically, intimately, until she had given birth to Jesus Christ, okay? To me, this absolutely refutes the Catholic teaching that Mary was a virgin perpetually. She was not. The word here is Joseph knew her not until she, until she had given birth to a son. At least two of the writers of the New Testament, Jude and James, were half-brothers of Jesus, sons of Joseph and Mary. And so we don't believe, we don't teach that Mary was perpetually a virgin. Okay? We come into chapter 2, and as we enter chapter 2, the question is, if Jesus had a right to the throne of Israel, did anyone acknowledge that right? Did anyone acknowledge it? Other than the fact that Matthew is quoting Old Testament Scripture to say it's true. It's one thing to meet the requirement racially and royally. It's another thing to have people pay homage to the king. And in this, sto in this story, on this, in this text, the two people that Matthew brings out that pay homage to Jesus as king are pagan. Two pagans. <laughs> Look at verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So Jesus was born in the days when Herod was king of Judea. Let's talk about Herod for a second. He stood, they say, four feet, four inches tall. You could say that Herod suffered from little man syndrome. And he went out and did great exploits to prove that he was somebody important. And he did. He accomplished far more than the average person. In 37 years, he erected palaces, aqueducts, entire cities. He erected fortresses, uh, one that you might be aware of that was built for him, the Masad, uh, the Masada. He also built moments or monuments in his name to ensure his legacy, and he was able to remodel the temple in Jerusalem. All of that done by this little guy. However, he was also a vicious, evil person. He was an outright murderer. He murdered his wife and he murdered his three sons all on the same night. Caesar Augustus said of Herod, it's safer to be Herod's pig than his son. He was a ruthless man. He, and because of that, Herod was hated by the Jews. He was hated by, supposedly, his own people. So as he came to the end of his life, knowing that no one would, would mourn his death, he ordered the arrest of a hundred popular people in that region. Had them arrested, put in jail. Why? Because he said, if the city won't mourn me when I die, let it mourn for those who die with me. Can you imagine that? Interestingly enough, on the day that Herod died, they did not fulfill his decree and take out the hundred uh, people. He was actually, Herod was not a Jew. Herod was an Edomite. An Edomite. 
The Edomites were the descendants of Esau. Sound familiar? Jacob and Esau, those two guys who in the womb were contentious and fighting with each other, coming out of the womb fighting with each other, and here all these hundreds and hundreds of years later, we see that they're still at war. A son of Esau, Herod, is trying to slaughter the son of Jacob, Jesus. How did Herod become king? Believe it or not, it was actually Mark Antony of Cleopatra, sound familiar? Who appointed Herod king of Judea. He was appointed as a puppet for Rome to rule the people. And it was during this period when Herod was king that the wise men came from the east. Behold, verse 1, wise men from, uh, from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. While we know these wise men came from the east, we have no clue how many came. It could have been a caravan for all we know. It certainly probably was not three as we see in the songs that we sing. They were probably Babylonian and they probably arrived not on the birth night of Jesus, but probably weeks or months later. Okay? Uh, what led them to come searching for Jesus Christ, the, the, the Christ child? Well, it's very plausible that they had remembered from 500 years earlier what a Jew who was held in captivity in their land said, Daniel the prophet. It was Daniel in Daniel 7, 13 through 14 who said, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there come one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And if it wasn't enough, Daniel gave the exact time or date that the Son of Man would ride into Jerusalem. Wow. So these guys coming from the Babylonian uh, empire are probably well-versed in their history, in their archives, and it's very likely that they had information. But it's also interesting how God draws us. We don't draw God. We don't go after God. God draws us to Him. And here God, these are astronomers. These are men who have studied the stars. And so God says, let me put it in the stars to draw them to the right place to receive the Christ child. Isn't it great that the way the Lord appears to people uh, when they're looking for him? Think about your own life. When you finally came to a point where you realized, I'm a mess. I've made a mess. And I need salvation. That whole concept, that whole idea in your head, that was the Lord. That was the Holy Spirit convicting you. No man can go to the Father except the Spirit of God draw him. So whenever your story is how you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as, as your Savior, it was God's story unfolding in your life. That's how intimate, that's how close God knows you and loves you. Your story is His story. Nobody comes to Him on their own. It's always on His terms and in His way. And so these guys come 500 years Later, after Daniel prophesies these wonderful words about this, this Savior that's coming, this Messiah, and they show up. They arrive in Jerusalem and they ask Herod where they might find the King of the Jews. In verse 2, look what it says. Where is he who has been born the King of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose and have come to worship him. It's important to note that the wise men weren't coming to see the Lord because he had done something for them. They didn't come all that way because Jesus had done something. They didn't come all that way to get something from him. We're talking about a little tiny baby. Why did they come? They came a great distance for the sole purpose of worshiping him, paying homage to him because of who he was. That's why they came. 
They saw him as the king of the Jews. They saw him as someone sent from God. What is our purpose for coming to worship? Why do we come and worship in the church service? Why? I wonder why we do that. Well, there's different reasons why, right? Maybe there's a young person here today. You're here because you really like that girl. And this is where she goes to church, so therefore I'm going to church. Amen. Maybe you're a business person and you're here because you got a big deal this week going down. And you just want to make sure you're on the right side of God. Maybe you're here because you've been feeling low lately. And you just need a picker-upper. Maybe the worship will really make me feel better. Maybe the people that I see. Some of us are coming because, man, I haven't seen that friend in forever because of COVID. Maybe they'll be there today. I'm going to go to church. Look, all those things can be a consequence of coming. None of them are the right answer for coming. The only reason that we should gather in the house of the Lord is to worship Him. It's not about us. It's not about our friends. It's not about that girlfriend. It's not about anything or anybody. It's about Jesus Christ, us coming and paying homage to Him, worshiping Him, loving Him, being with those who love Him. Amen? Sometimes we need that check in our life because we can get into a rut and we start coming to church for other reasons. It used to be that people would come here early before service because we got all this good food and this coffee. Now, COVID kind of took care of that for us, and people stopped coming early. <laughs> Hopefully, we'll have that again one day, and there's nothing wrong with coming early for some coffee. There's nothing wrong with that. But, but, the, but that shouldn't be why you come to church, right? Those are the side points. Those are the consequences of coming. That's the blessing of coming on the side. But the real reason I'm here is because there is none like him in all the earth. Amen? Amen. He is the king of kings, the creator of all things. He's the reason that I exist. He's the sovereign one. He's the smitten rock. Jesus is the alpha and the omega, the lily of the valley, the fairest of 10,000, the bright and morning star. Nothing else matters but that. We're here for him. Amen? Amen. That's it. We don't sing out because the music is music we like. We sing out because the words are right. And we believe them. And we walk in them and we live in them. And so we can declare them with our mouth and sing with all of our voice before God. Every time we gather as the people of God in this house, what we ought to do is lift these, these tiles. They ought to just start shaking a little bit. Because the people of God have come for one purpose alone, and that is to be with the king and recognize him as the king and worship him as the king. Revelation 4.11 declares, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. We ought to come with that frame of mind every Sunday. We don't need to get in here and then start focusing on our own feelings and focus on how we think and what's going on. We come in here to, to recognize and remember that no matter what my feelings are, no matter what I'm going through, no matter who's here or not here, my God is here, and I'm going to give him all that I have this morning in worship. He's the reason why I am here. Those wise men traveled a great distance across a desert land to worship the Son of Man, the King of the Jews. How could there be a greater physical validation that Jesus is Messiah than God sending pagan leaders from a foreign land to pay homage to Jesus? And by the way, every time we gather as the church to worship Jesus, we too are declaring that He is Messiah because God has stirred our hearts to make worship of him a priority in our lives. That's why we're here. He's the priority. Amen. Now let me just say this. <laughs> we could easily slip into some legalism too. You don't come because it's a duty. It's what I do. It's what's right. I come because God has transformed my heart. And I just want to love him back. And he's the one that's designed this thing called the church, and I want to be part of whatever he's designed. By the way, God's not building anything else on the earth. 
right now. Nothing else. The only thing, Jesus said, upon this rock I will what? Build. Build what? My church. You want to be part of the one thing that God's building. Amen? Amen. Verse 3, when Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Herod was upset because he realized there might be a true king, the son of David, a Jew around whom the nation of Israel could rally. Herod realized he couldn't be dethroned unless a true Jew came along. Why? Because Herod's an Edomite. He's not a true Jew. But why was all Jerusalem troubled? Because those close to him realized that if Jesus is truly the Messiah, they will, he will rally the people around this, this Messiah and he can literally kick us out. He can do whatever he chooses. They, they did not want what they had going turned inside out, upside down. And so Jesus is coming into, into this world in a time when nothing was working in his favor. Verse 4, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, look, these guys knew where Jesus was going to be born. They knew what the Old Testament scripture said about Messiah. The scribes that are speaking in the court of the king knew all about it. They, said, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, talking about Micah 5.2, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for, you shall come, for, for, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So these guys know all about it, but here's the problem. Knowing isn't the same as doing. It's not about knowing the truth. It's living the truth. It's being the truth. And that's where they failed. James said it this way, James 1, 22 through 25, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You're deceiving yourself if you're just knowing more and more about the Bible and not living what you know. He goes further, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. <laughs> but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So what's he saying? If we're not careful, we can become like these scribes. Well, we know what's happening. We know wh where it's going to happen. We can tell you all about that. Why didn't the scribes get up and run to Bethlehem? Why didn't they go? It's five miles away. The wise men came hundreds of miles. It took them probably months to get there. These guys are just down the street. Why didn't they? Because they're just knowers. They're not true believers. You can be a believer and still just be a, be a, a knower. God's not looking for people who are just knowers. He wants people to be knowers and doers of what they know. Do what you know. And I don't mean that in a legalistic sense. It's not about works righteousness. It's that let the word of God that you come into understanding of now begin to permeate your heart and you live out the truth of that word. Amen? You just live it out. This is who I am now. Praise God. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them, what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I, may, that I too may come and worship him. Seriously? Herod wants to worship Jesus? He wants to worship God? No, he wants to take God out, execute God. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that had been seen, or that they had seen, when it rose, uh, went before them until it came to the rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Here's the worship. And going into the house, notice that, it's a house. It's not a, it's not a stable. Jesus is no longer a little tiny baby. He's probably now a toddler. It's a few months later. Not the stable, okay? But what does he say? You say, well, what's, what's the significance of that, that he was born in a house and not a stable? 
The significance of that is this Christmas, as you lay out the nativity scene on your little mantle, that you make sure and put the wise men about four blocks away. <laughs> if you want to get the story right, go ahead and set them about four blocks, and go ahead and buy some extra wise men. Have about 30 or 40 of them out there. Verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Those are gifts that are given to prophets, priests, and kings. And Jesus is all three. I just find that fascinating. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So at Jesus' birth, pagan wise men acknowledged him as king. At Jesus' death, a pagan Roman leader named Pilate commanded that a sign read over him, king of the Jews. God made sure that even the pagans, when the Jews rejected Jesus, the pagans would recognize who he is. The Jews said, we will not have this man rule over us. They rejected his kingship. So God said, that's okay. He didn't come for those who don't need a physician. He is the physician, and he came for people who are broken, hurting, splattered, splintered, messed up. People like you and me. Amen? Thank you, God. Isaiah 46, verse 8 says, remember this and stand firm. This is just so fascinating to me. If you notice, the next thing in the verse, in verse 13 and 14, is that Joseph was told by the angel to depart that area and go to Egypt. How, how did they come up with the funds, this young couple that are in the betrothal period? Now Joseph, no doubt, was saving money for the big wedding feast that would happen at the end of the, of, of the year. But how did they come up with money to travel all the way to Egypt and live in Egypt? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. God was before them. God is always before us. He has never left you. Even when you feel alone, He is there. And He will provide for you. Isaiah 46, verse 8, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. Here it is. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. In your life, God will accomplish all his purposes. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and it will be and, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, who are I didn't say that about you, the Lord did. Um, <laughs> listen to me, you stubborn, you stubborn of heart. He's speaking to me too. Um, you who are far from righteousness, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. God is like, I'm telling you, I'm ahead of you. If trouble's coming, know that I've already got a plan to get you through the trouble or around the trouble or out of the trouble. But I might just take you through it and manifest my intervention in your life in so many marvelous ways that it'll just knock your socks off. Amen. That's what our God can do and oftentimes is doing. If we will stop looking out and looking in and look up. And ask him with a contemplative heart like Joseph, Father, how do I handle this matter? What do I do? Some of you are not saved. You're religious. I will tell you that the world is perfectly fine with religious people. People who have their own way to their own God. You will never find the way to the one true and living God through religion. That only comes through the work of Christ Jesus who died for you. We are not into religion. We are into following 
the true Savior of the world, and it requires something of, of us. It costs us. It costs the wise men gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It costs them a great deal of energy to travel through a desert land all the way to find Jesus. It cost them studying their own archives and records and looking to the sky and seeing the star and following it all the way to find the Christ child. It will cost you, if you're a, if you're a believer, to follow Jesus. It's not easy. It'll cost you friends. As you follow Christ, it will cost you friendships. It will probably even cost you family. It will cost you resource because you'll learn as a believer that it's not just about me getting it's about me letting god give through me to others it could even cost you financially because you learn that you want to be part of what god's doing in other places not just in your own life it's going to always cost you to follow jesus some of us have been religious and we've set up god in such a way that we can be content with it and think that god we're on the right side of god there is no right side of god except through jesus christ when it, when jesus said and we're going to be studying this i'm so excited for the sermon on the mount matthew 5 through 7 we're going to study how jesus said that there are going to be many people who will go down the wide path that leads to death he said many will go down that path. Only a few are going to go down the narrow path that leads to life. And by the way, what he was saying was, those who are going down the wide path think they're going towards God. Just as much as the people who are going down the narrow path. It's not like the path for the wide gate goes, this is your way to hell. It doesn't say that. It actually, we've got people today. You listen to some of these celebrity, well, there's many ways to God. That's the wide path. To follow Christ, it's narrow. It's a narrow view. What's the one thing people today don't want to hear from anybody? Is a narrow view. They want us to think broadly about everything. If you think the way Jesus has, has, has led you and called you to think, it's going to cost you. Amen? It's going to cost you. I want us to stand. Let's have a word of prayer. Let's just close our time together this morning. We'll come back and finish the remainder. But I want to ask you a question this morning. I want, to, I want you to just, like Joseph, just contemplate for a moment. What am I facing in my life at this time? And have I, like Joseph... Put that before the Lord. I want to invite the elders and the prayer uh, partners to come forward and sp please spread out. Don't be next to each other. Spread out quite a bit. I mean, where people who come up to you will not feel uh, like others around are listening. So please spread out. Stand quite a distance from each other. Can I have, hey, Ray and Helen, can you come over on this side? There's only one over here. Thank you so much. And, uh, if you are carrying a burden, you're carrying a trial that, man, you don't have an answer for, these wonderful people long to pray with you about that, to, to join you in bringing that issue before God. They don't have the answers. They're, these are not magical people. These aren't, they don't have the power. It's that they believe God does. And they simply want to come alongside you and agree with you for God to reveal what needs to be revealed, for God to do his marvelous work that he already has purpose to do. I, I just so love our elders at our church. These men meet twice a month, once for an agenda meeting where we discuss theological matters and we talk about uh, uh, vision and where, where God's leading our church. And the other meeting that we do, which we just had this past Wednesday, is the shepherd's meeting. The whole purpose of that meeting is to list out all the requests, all the needs of this body. We had a long list, and we prayed through every bit of it. People are important to God. That's why we exist as a church. It's not to keep some budget. It's not because of some other things, some program, 
It is people and ministering to people. And our elders, we were together for two and a half hours talking about needs in people's lives and then praying through the entire list. That's what these folks want to do. It's minister to you. The one thing we don't want to be accused of uh, accurately is that we care more about nickels and noses than we do people. It's about people. So please, come. Stand with someone. Let them join you in prayer if you need that. And if you're not saved this morning, put your faith in Jesus Christ. God's the one drawing you anyway, so go ahead and put your faith in him. Recognize that you're not righteous in yourself. You're a sinner. Recognize that he is the only one who can forgive you of your sins. Recognize that he's calling you to think differently, to turn and go another direction. And he will fulfill everything he calls you to. We saw that today. Father, thank you for this time. In just this moment, we just give opportunity for people to respond as we, like Joseph, as we consider these things. May your Holy Spirit guide each of us individually and corporately as a body. In a moment of silence, just go ahead and consider the Lord in your issues, in your daily life. If you want to come, come and just stand with one of these up front. They'll pray with you. Lord, your word says, for alone my soul waits in silence, for my hope is in him. Father, as a shepherd, one of the shepherds at Vero Bible, I, I know there are people who need hope right now. We think of Jeff Fouts and Angela, a young couple with three small kids, the one baby little girl just born, and Jeff with a brain tumor. And unless you intervene, he could pass at any time. So we know that, Lord, there are many needs. That's just one of them. And our prayer this morning is that you would have mercy on those who are hurting. Have mercy on people who are confused by issues of life mercy on those who are wounded deeply hurting have mercy on those who are growing more and more depressed have mercy Lord may they turn to you may they not look in may they not look out may they look up may they see you the king of glory and allow you to come in by opening the gates of their heart and their mind. Allowing you to minister your love to them. Reach those unevangelized parts of our heart. The parts that are scarred over from pain and suffering. And bring your life back into people. We're not talking about salvation and the loss of salvation. We're saved, but we're talking about how we as saved people can still live 
defeated. Uncertainties overwhelming us. No hope. God, change your people. Minister to them. Allow us to be hands and feet of Jesus to them. May we minister to those who are hurting. Lord, we think about uh, uh, a church in Louisiana right in Lake Charles. A sister, uh, it's like a sister church in the sense that I, I'm good friends with a pastor. And they have lost everything. That 90-something percent of the schools are not even functionable. They're not even thinking about when kids go back to school. They've got five hospitals in that region, and only one is operational. With this election and all that goes with it, they're not getting any focus of attention from the nation. God, use us to help this church, the people of that church and the people of their community. Use us, God. Let us be your hands of mercy and grace to them. We pray in Jesus' name. Thank you, Father, that you're the lifter of our heads and that when we do see you for who you are, it changes the outlook on everything. And we give you praise and honor as the king. Our king is not slipping. Our king is not missing. Our king is firmly seated on the throne. And we are his children. So we rejoice in you today. And all God's people said... Amen. Amen. You can still come if you'd like. If you guys could stay just for a minute longer, still feel free to come up if you'd like to be prayed for. And uh, make sure you have time for fellowship before you walk out, okay? God bless each of you.